0: Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central.
1: Good evening, everyone, and welcome to a special late-night episode of the Theology Central Podcast. It is Tuesday, December the 13th, 2022. It is currently 10.10 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the Theology Central studio located right here in Abilene, Texas. And it was from this very studio that a few hours ago, we started reviewing a podcast episode about law and grace. And all I can say is it was very frustrating. So I'm going to begin this late night episode with a very important question. I want you to put your thinking caps on. Now, we're not going to, this is not going to be an extra long broadcast tonight. I'm going to try to cut it maybe in half from its normal length. So maybe we'll shoot for around 30 minutes, 35 minutes. I'm not going to go super long, but I I just know that what we're trying to do in reviewing this audio, it's going to take a while. So if I can advance it a little bit tonight, then it's easy for me to finish it up tomorrow morning. So that's why I'm doing this. And I just wanted to, to get as far in this as I can. And just because I have been so bothered by everything we heard in part one, that I knew that if I, if I didn't just get some of this out and talk through some of this, then I would sit there laying in a dark room tonight, just just going over it and over it and over it and would not be able to sleep. So th- this is really for my own mental health, but, but this has bothered me. So I'm gonna ask you a very important question tonight. I'm gonna ask you a very important question tonight. Now, I don't know if you're listening live, if you're listening live, great. I don't know where you are, what you're doing, but wherever you are, whatever you, what, whatever you are doing, if you can take a few minutes to consider this question, I really want you to think about it. What is the good news? What is the good news? Now, I'm going to use that phrase. Now, we know we associate, associate good news with the word gospel or gospel with the phrase good news. We know that those are forever linked, but I'm just going to use the phrase, what is the good news? As a Christian, what is the good news? I'm going to give you three options. Are you ready? Option number one, the good news is that God, who is holy, pure, and righteous, sent his only begotten son, the eternal son of God, to die to pay for our sins and for his righteousness to be imputed to our account by faith alone. Is the good news is that a holy God saved sinners because these sinners could not save themselves and he saved them by the sacrifice of his son and by the righteousness and holiness and the law keeping of his son being imputed, being accredited to our account. Is that the good news? The good news is this. Hey, you're a sinner. God is holy. There's bad news in that. But wait, wait, just wait. The good news is that God who is holy sent his son who is holy without sin, who kept the law. He kept it on your behalf. He died for your sins and in his righteousness and his law keeping is imputed to your account. Is that really the good news? Now, if you ask most Christians if that's the good news, they will tell you yes, but I'm going to argue they don't really believe that's the good news. But is that the good news? I, I think it is. However, there's kind of a, a second approach to the good news, and it goes something like this. That now, now, listen to me. So, number one, the good news is Christ Christ. Our God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for us and his righteousness, I've got to stress this, and his law keeping, his obedience is imputed to my account and I am saved by faith alone, grace alone, apart from works. I know I keep adding a couple of phrases to it, but I really want to emphasize this first idea of good news. Or number two, is the good news, well, yes, Jesus died for you. Yes, he saved you by his death and by his imputed righteousness. However, the real focus of the good news is that Jesus made you, are you ready for this? He made you now able. He's now giving you the power. He's now giving you the ability that you can keep the law. So is the good news is that Jesus saved those who could not keep the law. Or is the good news is well yeah Jesus saved those who could not keep the law but now he's made them able he's given them the ability he's given them the power to keep the law Which is the good news There's a there is a very present portion of the evangelical world who whether they know it or not they have downplayed they've almost thrown under the bus The real good news, which I believe is number one, and they've mixed it now that, yeah, 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 Jesus died for you. Yeah, 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 you're saved by an imputed righteousness. But, 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 but the real good news is now you can keep the law. Now, the good news is you can do it. The good news is you can obey. The good news is you can say yes to God. The good news, you can say no to sin. That's the real good news. Now, the problem with this position, this supposed good news, is it doesn't really become good news because everyone who's been a Christian for more than, I don't know, three seconds realizes, well, I continue to sin, and 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 I continue to sin. And And this this supposed good news then turns into horrific news because then they will say, well, you're probably not saved. So it becomes really problematic. So what is the good news? It's the good news, number one, God is holy. He sent his eternal son to die for you and that his righteousness, his law keeping is imputed to your account and you're saved by grace alone to faith alone because of Christ alone apart from works. Or is the good news, well, yeah, Jesus did that, but then he gave you, he, 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 the good news is now you have the ability to keep the law and your law keeping supposedly is what proves you're saved. And and but and, and I don't know exactly how much law keeping has to occur, but something has to occur. So what is that the good news? I see I don't think that's good news. I don't think I don't think that's good news. There's a third one that we, we could go with, but but I'm not I I'm not gonna I'm not gonna offer it right now. I was going to offer it, but I just want us to focus on those two, right? I, I want to fo- because I kinda what I kinda did is combined I kind of combined the, uh, the second one is really a combination of number one and number two. And I was kind of, I was going to break it down a little bit more to get us to a number three, but that's okay. That's okay. Those these two will work. These two will work. So here we go. What is the good news? Jesus Christ, the only begotten son of God came, he kept the law. He died to save you from your sin and his law keeping his obedience is imputed to your account so you are saved by an imputed righteousness your sins have been washed away and now uh, and 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 you have been saved by grace alone through faith alone apart from works period or is the good news yeah Jesus did that but 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 the focus really becomes he now gives you the ability to keep the law. Now some people say no no no, we're not making that the emphasis, but it becomes the emphasis. See, I was going to break it down and just say number 2 is is the good news is is the good news that you can now keep the law. I was just going to leave number 2 as you can keep the law and then make number three, a combination of one and two. But I went ahead and just grouped them together because very few people would say the good news is just now that you can keep the law. They would not really actually say that. So it'd be somewhat of a straw man to 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 break it down into three different, three different types of good news. So the reality is there's two. Number one, the focus is on what God is, has done for us in Christ Jesus, imputed righteousness, imputed obedience to us. And we're saved by grace alone, faith alone, apart from works. The second supposed good news or the second version of the good news is a combination of, yeah, Jesus died for you. However, but the real focus is, now you can keep the law. Now you can do it. You can do it. I, I, I just, it, 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 whether they understand it or not, they take the good news and they throw it under the bus. They throw it in the trash because that is not good news because the reality is we sin and we sin and we sin and we sin. I really want you to contemplate what is the actual good news? What is the actual focus? Now, we've been listening to uh, an audio that came from the, uh, the Gospel Coalition uh, conference from 2021. I don't know which conference, but it was from a conference. And they were having a discussion about law and grace. It's a, a female and a man talking. I don't remember their names. Uh, the female, I guess, in 2014, wrote an article that really attacked what she believed to be uh, something that was bubbling up in the evangelical world. And this was this idea of a kind of a celebratory failureism, I guess is the right way to put it. It's celebrating your failure celebrating your failure, and that Christians were like, look, nobody is perfect, we're going to sin, and that's just the way it is. And she basically wrote an article saying, no, 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 no. There's no celebrating your failure because you don't have to fail anymore because you can keep the law. Meaning that the good news is, see, you can keep the law now, so you don't have to fail. Well, if I never have to fail, then that means I can be perfect. But then they would say, well, you can't be perfect but don't celebrate your failure because you really don't have to fail. So I don't know. I, I still haven't figured out, can I be perfect or not perfect? It, it's always this bait and switch kind of thing here. But we're going to go back and review it. So I really just want to stress this. Oh, I, almost, and part, part of me just wants to just leave that question hanging there in the air. What is the good news? What is the actual good news? I know every Christian listening is going to be, well, ah oh, duh obviously it's that God sent his son, he died for us, and we're saved by an imputed righteousness apart from works. Obviously that's the good news. See, everyone would say that, but inadvertently it turns into, no, 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 no. The good news is we can keep the law now. We can keep the law now. So I don't really need the imputed righteousness anymore because I can do it. I can do it. I now have the power. I can do it. See, why do we even need imputed righteousness? We just needed our sins washed away. Now we can keep the law. So why do we even need an imputed righteousness? And if, if, and if all of a sudden now I can keep the law, then what was the point of giving me an imputed righteousness? Why didn't he just give me an infused righteousness, which would take me right back to Roman Catholicism, which is really what a lot of the evangelical world is just Catholicism light. So what is the good news? I just really want to ask that question like a hundred times tonight. All right. With that in mind, now we go back to this conference. And again, their argument, and, and so their argument is that really, that they've they played the antinomian card, that the real threat to the church is antinomianism. That's the real threat which I think is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard preached at a conference in my life. The real threat to the Christian world is not antinomianism because all I, I, again, I would challenge you to do this. Just start grabbing every random sermon you can find from any kind of church and just listen to how much law is preached. Do this, do this, do this. You need to do this. You need your quiet time. Read your Bible, pray, join a small group, do this. 15 steps to be a better husband, 15 steps to do this. It's just law, 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 law. To say that antinomian is the threat to the church is ridiculous because the church is drowning in law and law, self-improvement. You know, do this, do that, don't do this, do that. It's all we ever talk about is what we are supposed to do. So I don't believe the threat to the church is antinomianism. I believe the threat is that we believe the way to advance in the Christian life, succeed in the Christian life, the way to do anything in the Christian life is by law keeping. Which destroys the real good news, which is you cannot keep the law. Christ kept it for you. Your salvation is based off his imputed righteousness, not your practical righteousness, and the proof of your salvation can't be your practical righteousness if you were saved by an imputed righteousness. All right, now we're going to go back. Oh, Okay, we're going to go, we're going to jump into this. I know it, I took 13 minutes to, to do that, and I apologize, but that's really the question I've just been walking around tonight at different times, just asking myself, what is the good news? What is the good news? What is the good news? What is the good? I, I don't see how it's good news to tell me that I can now keep the law. And the reason I don't think it's good news is because I could never keep the law. Remember, to keep the law, what would be required? Personal, perfect, exact, entire, perpetual obedience. That obedience would be external and it would be internal. And if I break one point of the law, I'm guilty of all of it. I cannot keep the law. I cannot meet that standard ever, ever. So if anyone is saying that that's the good news or part of the good news is giving me fraudulent news. All right, let's go back to this audio. Here we go. And she's uh, what she's doing right now is she's claiming the reason people don't understand this this correctly is because we don't, that those of us who reject her theory, according to her, we're biblically illiterate. We only like short sermon series, and we never preach from the Old Testament. We only preach from the epistles, which is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my entire life, considering my favorite book of the Bible happens to be Leviticus. And I clearly don't hate short sermon series and I, so I, I just, it's just her, she's just making these accusations against anyone who disagrees with her position that basically the reason you disagree is because you just don't know your Bible, which is uh, just crazy. All right, let's continue.
0: Or we have been told wrongly that the God of the Old Testament was thunderous and grumpy, and then the cross happens and the God of the New Testament is now welcoming and loving. But, you know, you can, if, if you do a word search in the Old Testament, you find out that God is described as compassionate over and over again in the Old Testament. He's the same God.
1: Wow, I didn't, I'm, I'm so glad that I'm listening to her because I did not know that the Old Testament God, the New Testament God, was the same God. I was a completely uh, on the wrong understanding here. And I, and I don't know what this word search is. I got to figure out how to do a word search because I'm not, I'm not obviously okay. I'm being very, very, very over the top sarcastic, but it's just, it's insulting that her, her argument is if you don't agree with her, it's because you think the God in the old Testament is different than the God in the new Testament. And obviously you don't know how to do a word search.
0: Therefore, his law should be equally beautiful in the life of the Yahweh follower, whether you are on one side of the cross or on the other. Um, but I do think a lot of this is, is a Bible literacy issue related strictly to the length of preachable or teachable books that keeps us only in the shorter books of the Bible, and gives which means you're going to be in the epistles a ton. Um, and if you're in Paul's epistles, you're probably talking a lot more about justification uh, and so I think that's a lot of how we got here.
2: No, that's, that's a really interesting observation. I mean, you, you know, another angle on this, is you mentioned the book of James mm-hmm. and I, I, I tell my students this a lot, I was like, look, if you want to get a balanced view of the law, you've got Romans and Galatians on the one side, which are wonderful. And, and, and you just have to have those, but then you have James on the other side. And what I love about what James does is he's fighting against a different enemy. Mm-hmm. So if Paul and Galatians is fighting against the Judaizers, the legalists, so to speak, mm-hmm. James is really fighting against antinomianism. And so the book of James is a book about how to live.
1: So I want, is James really fighting against antinomianism? Is James really fighting against antinomianism? Or is James speaking about a different kind of justification? Before God, I am justified by an imputed righteousness. Before man... Before others, my quote-unquote justification will be based on what I do and don't do. But my, justif- my justification before God, I mean, no one can lay uh, uh, anything at the charge of God's elect because God is the one who justifies. I am completely justified by God by, by an imputed righteousness. Is James referring to a different kind of justification or is he fighting antinomianism? I mean, I I think, I think there, there's some serious issues. And if we take James at his word, like if we, if we go with a direction that, that many Christians will go, it will basically will result in basically no one being saved because guess what? No one keeps the law perfectly. So we fall short over and over and over and over and over. And we're not justified by faith alone. We are justified by our works. As James seems to point out, well, if I'm justified by my works, that cannot be before God. And some will say, well, no, no, it proves I'm saved. If it proves I'm saved, then we're in trouble. And here's the reason why. To prove that I'm saved by looking at my practical righteousness makes absolutely no sense. Since I'm not saved by it, I'm saved by an imputed righteousness. and imputed righteousness does not produce practical righteousness unless you believe that it was an infused righteousness, which leads you right back to the era of Roman Catholicism.
2: It's filled with ethics. It's filled with what you should do. And of course, famously, everyone knows that Luther wasn't a big fan of the book of James. And there's no surprise because Luther was really, really concerned about the doctrine of justification. But any thoughts on how James really helps bring balance to this? Because I really think it's a key book.
0: Yeah, James' is New Testament wisdom literature. And if you've paid attention to what's happening in James and you know there's so much crossover to the Sermon on the Mount, he's not saying a new thing. He's saying the thing that he probably heard Jesus say.
1: Right. And the Sermon on the Mount is what, class? The Sermon on the Mount is law, 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 law. The Sermon on the Mount condemns. Condemns, 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 condemns. The Sermon on the Mount says, be ye perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The Sermon on the Mount calls for perfect, exact, entire, perpetual obedience. When you get to the Sermon on the, end of the Sermon on the Mount, you would be like, who can be saved? No one can be saved. We are all condemned. So what is your hope? Your hope in the Sermon on the Mount is in the one who preached it, because the one who preached it obeyed it. And the one who obeyed it, his obedience, passive and active, his righteousness is imputed to my account. So in Christ, I keep the Sermon on the Mount. In my practical life, we all fall short of it. Jesus made sure we understood that the law has this Internal element, not just the external part, but the internal part. And so we are all guilty. We all fall short. And if James is borrowing from that, then, then we have to understand the law condemns. But see what they, what they would claim and 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 maybe they'll be more explicit is that, Hey, you can keep it. You can do it. You can do it. God God now has given you the the good news is now you have the ability to keep the Sermon on the Mount. You have the ability to, to obey the book of James. You have the ability, the, you now have the ability to obey the book of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. You can obey, obey the entire law. They, that's what they have made the good news. They have replaced the good news that no God saved those who can't but they've turned the good news into God has now made those who can't those who now can. But the reality is we don't.
0: Over and over again during his earthly ministry. And so repetition has probably done its work in the mind of James. And now he is rearticulating the ethic that Jesus has presented in the sermon on the Mount. And, um, That is actually where this whole conversation started for me as I was writing and teaching a study on the Sermon on the Mount and just came face to face with the idea that Jesus really means what he's saying, Um, that he's not the one who fulfills all of those things that he's saying and that only, that he's actually calling us to live lives that look like this.
1: Oh, my goodness. Yes, we're called to do it and then we'll be confronted of our inability to do it and then see 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 how she just kind of changed the good news no it's not that just it's not that just jesus fulfilled it no he's calling us to do it see the good news is you can now do it that's not the good news because you can't do it i i don't understand what delusion you have to have been hit with to say i can keep the law i can do it I can do it. I can do it. I can do it. I can do it. I'll just give you three. Love the Lord that God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. Sorry. Nobody ever pulls it off. Love your neighbor as yourself. Sorry. You never pull it off. Hey, be holy as God is holy or be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Guess what? You you have, all of you have fallen short. Uh, someone just says it's terrifying that uh she wrote a study on the Sermon on the Mount. It is terrifying, but sadly, it probably is like all the other studies on the Sermon on the Mount, which is do this. This proves you're saved. Do this. Do this. Do. Do..." But according to her, all the sermons on the Sermon on the Mount are antinomian because that's the greatest threat to the church and so every sermon you hear in the Sermon on the Mount is nope you don't have to do any of this Jesus did it for you that that's what she's afraid of so she thinks we need a, a different kind of sermon on the Sermon on the Mount but every sermon I've ever heard on the Sermon on the Mount is do this do this do this do this do this do this this proves you're saved this proves your repentance is genuine do th-. where is the antinomian sermons? Obviously, they are out there and obviously they exist, but just overwhelmingly, it's all law-based, not gospel-based.
0: Because that is the way his disciples would have received the message. He's trying to overturn all of their expectations of what it means that the kingdom of God is at hand. And he's doing it by saying, you're not going to look a little different. You're going to look entirely different than the world around you and here are the the guardrails that are going to make that Um, be true. And he is pulling on the old Testament tradition, uh, wisdom literature. He talks about two trees and two paths and two kinds of teachers and two kinds of speech and two kinds of treasures, which is all of the language of Proverbs, which is telling us the way of wisdom or the way of folly, uh, wisdom literature being the path that shows us how to live God's way in God's world. And so, um, when you think about what James is trying to do, it's the same thing. He's saying, look, you're on the ground. Here you are. You have the grace of your justification. And now here is the path to walk forward on. And it is and, it, and its guardrails are delineated by God's good and beautiful and delightful law.
2: Yeah, the Sermon on the Mount, I think, is, is just a wonderful challenge to the misconception. Mm-hmm. Because what you realize when you read that passage is that Jesus views the law beautifully because that's mm-hmm. what he does when he talks about misconceptions of the law that he's fixing. Um, but also, he doesn't mind teaching the law. Mm-hmm. This, this, this is this is one of the things that I think comes up a lot um, is the idea that if you call people to obedience in a sermon, if you call people to obedience in a message, if you teach the law, that that's somehow unchristian. Mm-hmm. And as
1: I, <laughs> I don't know where these sermons are that people are teaching, saying teaching the law is unchristian. Because all I hear is law, that's all I ever hear, so I don't know what you' ref- I don't know what you're talking about, but let's just play your little game. No, at least from my perspective, that's obviously not going along with them in any way, shape or form, because I think what they're saying is ridiculous, but I'll play along. My issue is not calling people to obedience. No, I believe this is what God calls us to do. all right i I've got no problem with that. But the issue is, at some point, you have to realize that the people you're calling it to do it will not do it. They will always fall short. They need to know they're going to fall short. They need—in fact, they don't even need to know it. They already know it. They know they don't do what they want to do. They know they do they the things they want to do they don't do, and the things they don't want to do they do. They know that deep down. But you, yes, you do not water down the law in any way, shape, or form. You preach Christ's call to obedience. You say, this is what the, t- the Sermon on the Mount says— There is no recourse. There's no exception. This is what it says. Do you feel the weight of it? And when they feel the weight of it, then you say your only hope is in Christ. Your concern is if that I'm not supposed to say you can't do it. What I'm supposed to say is you can do it. And if you don't do it, then you're not saved, which is ridiculous because you two sitting there talking, you don't keep the Sermon on the Mount. You fall short of it. Man, it, this turns into the whole pharisaical thing. I thank thee, God, that I'm not like this person. And I thank God that I'm not because I have the power to keep it. I can obey the law. I've kept the law since I was, since I was a youth. I've, I've done all of these things and more because I'm not like all these worthless sinners out there. We keep the law. It's, it's ridiculous. No, you don't. You may look the part externally. Oh, but trust me internally when the cameras aren't rolling, when the microphone's not hot, the real you <laughs> demonstrates how much of a sinner you still are. And, the, and, and, and so, I mean, look, either, either the good news is he's given me the ability to do it, do it, or the good news is he saved me because he knows that I can't. But it's just crazy that no the sermon on the mount is, is it's wonderful it's great it it yeah. no 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 one is saying you can't preach the sermon on the mount saying this is what God calls you to do it is what he calls us to do and we should strive for it but the reality is we can never obey it we can never fulfill it the sermon on the mount tells you to be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect you can not be as perfect as God. And if you think you can, we need to get you some help immediately.
2: I think about that. I'm like, well, does that mean the Sermon on the Mount is unchristian? Right. Because if you read the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus doesn't talk about justification anywhere. It's just a long, several chapters of how to live. And I think, well, does that make...
1: No, it's a long couple of chapters Of an exposition of the law demonstrating that mere external obedience to said law is insufficient in obeying it. Whoa well, what are you talking about? There's no justification in it. It's just giving us rules to no, it's an exposition of the law. It's giving us a, hey, your understanding of the law is external. The law goes beyond the external. It goes to the internal to show you that you have all failed it. You all hey, Jesus is famous for not offering any any discussion about justification. Remember the rich young ruler? keep the law. I've kept it. Oh you have. Go sell everything and give to the poor. Well, I can't do it. Does Jesus say, hey, 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 come back, come back, buddy, come back. Let me tell you about justification. No, he gives him the law. The law is to show people their sins and it's supposed to drive them back to his grace and mercy, but you have to be, be broken and humble. So you realize I can't do this. What's my, what, what can I do? What can I do? You have to be the person who says, I'm Lord, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy of anything. I'm not worthy of your grace. I'm not worthy of your mercy. I'm a sinner. I'm a. I'm a I, I am an unclean man, and I'm in a land of of an unclean people with unclean lips. I. I am. Un- That's what it's supposed to drive you to. But see, in his in their view, the Sermon on the Mount. It's the ethics that you can do. You can do it. 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 Can do it. But nobody in two thousand years has. Nobody.
2: Also James unChristian because James is just chapter after chapter after chapter of how to live. Um, and then I also think, what about a book like Proverbs? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. which is, again, you know, wisdom on how to live chapter after chapter after chapter. So the idea that you can't talk about how to live or talk about the law, because if you did, it makes you a legalist, I think just is out of sync with the Bible's own witness. Well,
1: and I- again, I don't know who is saying you can't talk about the law. You can talk about the law all day. Here's what God calls us to do. This is God's standard. This is what God demands. Absolutely 1,000% agree. Now, the point is, can we do it? No, we can't. All right, so now what do we do? So now what do we do? Well, we're left with only a few options, Right. Well, then my hope is in an imputed righteousness, or do I actually tell people and try to convince people that somehow with that imputed righteousness was an infused righteousness that now gives you the ability to keep the law, and if you don't keep the law, you're not saved. Is that, is that, is that your solution? Well, you see, all of these rules, the Bible's full of rules, you've got to keep it. Well, nobody keeps it. I, I, I don't understand. The, nobody is saying, you can't preach the law. No, you. Uh, what I've always heard in and, and, and circles that really believe in a clear distinction between law and gospel is you must preach the law. But the solution to the law is the gospel. The solution to the law is not that you somehow magically supposedly have the power to keep it. And so you have to live a life of self-delusion and believing that you're keeping it when clearly you're not.
0: I think where the conversation kind of has broken down is that people have come to wrongly think of the Pharisee or the legalist as someone who is good at obeying the law and that the antinomian is someone who just throws the law out. So the antinomian is lawless and then the Pharisee is lawful. But the reality is that Both the Pharisee and the antinomian are practicers of lawlessness. They are the lawless man who is described to us in the Bible because what the antinomian disregards, the Pharisee twists to his own purposes. His obedience is to self-elevate and self-exalt. And so that's why um, sacrifices and offerings from him are not acceptable to the Lord. They've offered the fruit of their lips, but their hearts are far from him.
1: Okay, now in some ways, she's she's making an interesting point here, and I'm willing to concede that the antinomian lawless, okay, throws out the law. Okay, I, again, I don't know where they find these antinomians because all I ever hear in every sermon is law. Okay, but the Pharisee is in a sense still law. Now, I, I would disagree a little bit here because the Pharisees were known for keeping the law. Now, by no, oh, by all means, did they twist it? Was their motivation in keeping it wrong? Yes, but I'm going to make this so. So, I, I typically would argue this. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. All that law keeping that the Pharisees did still wasn't proof of salvation because they were still lost. Why were they lost? Well, she just said, because their motivation in keeping the law, they twisted it. They used it for their own advancement. They used it for their own glorification. So which means even when you keep the law, it still doesn't prove anything because you could be doing it for the wrong reason and the wrong motive. So you, even your, even your obedience isn't proof of anything because your obedience could be done with the wrong reason, wrong motivation and the wrong focus. So in a roundabout way, you've even made this more complicated. (laughs) Hey, you have to keep the law, but, 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 but you have to keep the law with the exact right internal motivation, the right internal desire for the right purpose. So even keeping the law externally, you still may be guilty because you didn't do it internally correctly. Now, I agree that that's correct, which just demonstrates (laughs) we can't do it. No one keeps it perfectly. Even internally, we don't keep, even when we are obeying the law, there's almost always some way we are corrupting it internally inside of ourselves.
0: And so what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount and what James is doing in his epistle is he's saying, no, no, no. The the obedience that pleases God is right motive combined with right action. And so he, the thing, Exactly. You have to have the
1: external and you have to have the internal and you're somehow telling me the good news is you can do it. No, that is horrifying news. My obedience has to be so perfect. It has to be exact. It has to be entire. It has to be exact. I've got to keep every letter of it, right? And then it has to be entire because it has to be Internal and external. Anybody who's even remotely honest with the scriptures and their own lives would be like, well, then I'm 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 condemned. I'm doomed. Or you have to just walk around pretending.
0: It blew me away in the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus doesn't say you should obey the law. Um, You know, here's the line and walk up to it. He actually says, if you know the line for sin is here, you should flee the other direction. You should have an expansive obedience to the law, not merely a letter of the law obedience, but a spirit of the law obedience.
1: Okay, so our obedience has to go even beyond the letter. We have to go to the spirit. And 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 she believes she's doing it. Like she's sitting there believing she's pulling this off. Like what kind of crazy can sit there and believe that they're doing it? I don't understand. Like well, I, I, I I I just don't understand. I don't understand Christianity. I I literally am baffled by Christianity. That Christians walk around believing they pull this off. That Christians literally walk around, well, in a conference telling everyone, everyone else has it wrong because Jesus calls for this kind of obedience. And obviously, I do it. Obviously, my my partner here, we do it. We don't know about all of you other publicans, tax collectors and harlots, but us we keep the law exact. We keep it perfect. Well, congratulations, man. That I mean, at least someone's pulled it off.
2: Yeah, so once again, Jesus is a lover of mm-hmm. the law. Mm-hmm. And I think once when you realize that you're like, so it's not unchristian to love God's law. It is unchristian to use the law as a means of meritorious works of righteousness. Mm-hmm. But it's not um, uh, a, a sin to use the law as something that you love and want to and seek to follow. Now, when we talk about.
1: And I got no problem saying we should want to keep it, that we should long to keep it, we should desire to keep it. We should. <laughs> but we can't.
2: Celebratory failureism, the word you used it, you know, it makes me think that people are convinced that they can never really obey. Mm-hmm. And I, I've, I've heard this, and maybe you've heard this language too, um, those who are listening and those who are listening on the video, this idea that, well, yeah, yeah you'll try to keep the sermon on the mount. You're just going to fail Just admit You're going to fail in advance. Mm-hmm. There's nothing you can do about it. I know you're going to try to keep the book of James. But you're just going to fail. You're going to fail and nothing you can do about it. Just sort of this defeatist perspective on, on, on the way we,
1: Okay, now he's talking directly to me, okay? Obviously, he doesn't know who I am, but he's talking directly to my perspective. It's defeatist. Now, I think she called it celebratory, It sounded like he called it celebratory favoritism, but it's cel- celebratory failureism, I, I think, because it's about celebrating your failure. I, I think, maybe he said failureism, it's not like he said favoritism, but okay, all right. But defeatist. Now, many people would say that my perspective is defeatist, and I understand that, and I, I got that's all by all means throw those those accusations against me Throw them at me all day. Come on, just let me have it. Come on, just email me right now, newsif at yahoo.com, that you're sick and tired of my defeatist Christianity that says that nobody can keep the law. It's a bunch of garbage because you can keep it. All right, now make sure you're very careful how you email me because the way you email me may demonstrate that you're not actually keeping the law as you email me, which I find hilarious. Those who've argued with me, who turn around and then either say, Absolutely disrespectful things, no respect, backed by gossip, slander, but then argue with me about my defeatist form of Christianity while they actually break the law. It's hilarious. Okay, but, 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 I digress. Now, now here's the thing. Here's the thing. I understand that in the minds of many Christians, they want to believe that we can keep it, that we have the power. And I do understand that my perspective feels like a defeatist attitude. I understand. And I know it bothers people. I look, I understand it. And sometimes I, 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 am just going to be honest with my, I struggle with myself going, do I have a defeatist attitude? But then I just stop and go, okay, wait a minute. All right. I'm not going to have a defeatist attitude. I am going to fulfill three passages of scripture. Love the Lord that God with all my heart, mind, body, and strength. Love my neighbors, myself and be ye holy as God is holy. Those are three scriptures, right? Love the Lord thy God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. Love your neighbor as yourself, and be ye holy as God is holy. I'm just going to put those three on my refrigerator, and I'm going to do it. I've never done it yet. I've never pulled it off one time, and I've never met a Christian who has. So, is it defeatist to say that we can't do it when no, and, and and the Christians who say that they can do it are out of their ever-living mind as respectful as I can be.
2: Uh, live the Christian life. And I wonder if there is a misunderstanding there of total depravity. Um, and and I want to get your thoughts on this, Jen, and, and, and let you know. When we talk about total depravity— in, in theological terms, we're talking about every pers- every part of our person being fallen. So it's not just our actions, but our will and our minds all fallen. That's what the total means. It doesn't mean you're as sinful as you can possibly be. Um, we know that's just factually not true. It just means that all aspects of you are broken and uh, affected by the fall. But is there a difference after someone's converted? This is almost like the thing that no one talks about. The non-Christian trying to keep the law is one thing, but once... Once the Christian has a spirit in them, is that not a game changer? What are, your, what are your thoughts on that as a paradigm that somehow people are missing?
0: I don't want to give you my thoughts. I want to give you Titus's thoughts.
2: There you go. Or the
0: thoughts that were addressed to Titus, I should say, um, where it says uh, grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness, that we would be a people zealous to do good works. So grace actually gives us the means to view rightly our relationship to the law
1: Grace teaches us to do something, right? I got no problem that the grace of God, because it saved me from my law breaking, should teach me and should want should lead me to want to obey the law. That's a million miles away from when you're saved now. You can do it. That's a million miles apart. I should want to. Right? I, exactly. Teaches doesn't mean gives the means. I'm t. Te- it teaches me something. Yes. My mind should change about sin. Right? I mean, we, we talk about repentance and repentance and its very essence is a change of mind. In salvation, my mind should change about sin. My mind should change about what is right and what is what is wrong. Grace should teach me that man, I don't want to do that. I, I God God Jesus died for that. Jesus saved me from that sin. I don't want it. I, I got no problem saying that there should be a change of mind, that there should be somewhat of a change of desire that we don't want to do it. I'm I got no problem with that. But that's a million miles, a billion miles from saying, hey, guess what? Now you have the means to do it. And I think it's funny because he just said, well, reality tells us that total depravity doesn't mean that we can be, that we are as sinful as we can be, because clearly that's not true. We see the reality of it. Well, congratulations. Now I'm going to use your argument. If you're about to tell me that now Christians possess the ability to keep the law, I will argue reality tells me that's not true. And to
0: benefit from it, like the law becomes a means of grace in the life of the believer,
1: what? And though okay, 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 okay. Law becomes a means of grace? <sighs> oh, 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 oh. Oh man. Okay. All right. I got to take a deep breath here. I I have j- I just heard a Christian tell me that law is a means of grace. We receive grace from the law. Man, this is categorically. Oh, wow. All right. I got to listen to this again.
0: Benefit from it. Like the law becomes a means of grace in the life of the believer. And it trains us to renounce ungodliness.
1: Now, wait a minute. The, The text she quoted said grace teaches us. She's now taken that text, flipped it around, and say law is the means of grace. Law is now doing the teaching. The passage says grace does the teaching. She just turned it into a passage that says law does the teaching. How can you utterly sit there and and obliterate the meaning of the text and make it say something it doesn't say? Law is a means of grace. Oh, wow. Okay, I got to back this up again. Again, does she give the Titus passage? Does she give the Titus passage? Okay. So, and
0: so
1: I'm gonna back this up again to see. All right, hang on. I'm gonna look at this. Hang on. Wow. This, I just I'm having a hard time with this. I'm having a hard oh, okay. I've got to stop. I was only gonna go 30 minutes. We're at 46 minutes. Okay, I gotta look at this. Okay. Grace teaches. Us, all right, uh, man, Titus 2. Wow, 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 what has happened? What has just happened? I am, I am literally blown away by this. I'm literally blown away by this. Titus 2, for the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Grace is teaching us that, or the grace that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. Now, is the grace of God that bringeth salvation appeared to all men? Is that Christ? But the bottom line is that grace teaches us that that teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. We should, but she turned it into law. Law is a, me- she, she took this te- text, Right. This has nothing like what she just said. Exactly. Someone else is saying that, like, in in the chat, that this literally she just made it say something that it absolutely doesn't say. I am dumbfounded by this. From from a ministry called the Gospel Coalition, has just told me law is a means of grace. I am baffled beyond. I don't even have words here. Okay, I'm going to try to back this up. I'm going to move this back up. All right. I'm going to play this whole thing
2: here again. Here we go. Thoughts on that as a paradigm that somehow people are missing.
0: I don't want to give you my thoughts. I want to give you Titus's thoughts.
2: There you go. Uh,
1: I'm sorry. And I I, I was going to say, lady, I'm sorry. That would be disrespectful. Ma'am, I'm sorry. You don't give us Titus thoughts. You just made up a whole bunch of garbage and are claiming that Titus said it where you're adding to the word of God.
0: No. Are the thoughts that were addressed to Titus, I should say, um, where it says uh, grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness, that we would be a people zealous to do good works. So grace actually gives us the means to view rightly our relationship to the law and to benefit from it. Like the law becomes a means of grace in the life of the believer, and it trains us to renounce ungodliness. And so the law is a gift to us. Um, and I think that's something that people have missed. They actually think that grace and law are in opposition to one another.
1: Grace and law are complete opposites to one another. Okay. Law says, do this and you shall live. Law condemns. Law exposes sin. Law is do this, do this. Where gospel is, it has been done for you. They're in complete opposite to one another. We talk, we've been talking about in this series on law and gospel, the danger of merging these two together. And we're hearing it happen, happen in real time. We have literally just heard That of all the means of grace, and I know there's much debate within church history about the means of grace. Some believe baptism is a means of grace. Some people believe the Lord's Supper is a means of grace. Sacramental theology, these things are visible signs and a visible means of grace. Well, now she's just added another means of grace. The law is a means of grace. Where in the Bible does the law ever give grace? And if the law gives grace... Why did we need the gospel?
2: No, I think that's exactly right. I mean, we forget that the word of God, which includes the law, is a means of grace. It's mm-hmm. a means of encouraging. Mm-hmm. It's a means of...
1: What's He just said it is what well. the, the Bible... Oh, my... Oh, what do you mean by a means of grace? Well, the law can't be a means of grace because it condemns.
2: Enlightening... Mm-hmm. But all of that's possible for the believer with the spirit. Mm-hmm. And this is the thing that I think we often forget is that the non-Christian looks at the law and it's pure enemy, mm-hmm. right? Maybe there's some external things it can do for you, but as a whole, it's gonna just condemn you. But for the believer with the spirit, regenerating your heart, you now can begin to obey it. It's, In other words, I feel like someone just needs to say it, real obedience is possible. Perfection's yeah. not possible. No. <laughs> um, this sort there,
1: There's the bait and switch. Hey, obedience is possible, but perfection isn't. Wait, 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 wait. If obedience is possible, then complete obedience is possible. And if you say that I can't be perfect, then you've just admitted we can't keep the law because the law demands perfect obedience. You can't say you can obey the law. But you can't do it perfectly and call that obedience to the law because the law demands perfect, exact, entire, perpetual obedience. And if you break one point of the law, you're guilty of the whole thing. Oh, I'm so sick of that game Christians play. Hey, we have the power. We can obey. See the small print. Please listen. When you get down, you read the small print. However, you can't be perfect. However, you will continue to sin. But 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 you have the power. You have the power. You have the power not to drown. However, if you don't hold your breath and if you don't get back to the surface within a certain amount of time, time you will drown. But you have the power not to drown. However, if you don't hold your breath and you don't get back to the surface in a certain amount of time, you will die. Hey, you have the power to obey. However, you're still going to sin. However, you can't be perfect. But you have the power. You have the power to be sinful. You have the power to be imperfect. But you have power. What kind of twisted good news is that? You have the power to not do it. What?
2: of higher Christian life, that's not what we're talking about. But the idea that you can wholeheartedly pursue a life of obedience, it seems like we've sort of just tried to say that's impossible to stop stop talking about it. Well,
0: because we keep screwing up and then we feel bad. Yes. You know, you're like, and and you're like, maybe I'm the worst at this. Yeah. And so then you're, then you're like, can I find some buddies who are bad at this too? So we can all. You're
1: right. You keep screwing up. I wonder why you keep screwing up. Why do you? I wonder. Anybody, anybody, someone immediately, I need you to text me right now. Why do we keep screwing up? Because we're still sinners with our depravity, and we will always keep screwing up.
0: I'll feel better about this, and I'm, I'm actually not trying to be funny. It is a horrible thing to know that you have missed the mark again as someone who's indwelt by the Spirit. Nobody wants to feel that way. And I think that we do need to acknowledge that the path of sanctification is filled with failures. It is. Um, but over the course of a lifetime, we should see increasing distance between the frequency of our besetting sins.
1: <laughs> so, hey, you can obey. And now all we're hoping for is, well, you'll see an increasingly a, a growing distance between the times you commit those besetting sins. <laughs> Wait, you can do it, but 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 reality you're gonna screw up all the time. And the reality is, is the best you can hope for is a decrease in the frequency you commit your besetting sin. But wait a minute, is that a decrease in the times that I constantly commit sin? Like, wait a minute, do I love God with my heart, mind, body, and soul? No, so I'm constantly in sin. Do I love my neighbor as myself? No, I'm constantly in sin. Am I holy as God is holy? No, so therefore I'm constantly in sin. So how are you measuring supposed success because of the decrease and the frequency which you commit the besetting sin, but after you just told us that we can do it, this this is the mo- this is maddening. This is insane. All right, we, we have to stop. I'm gonna back this up to the 25 minute mark. Wow. I, I gotta write this correctly. 25 minute mark. Law grace. Wow. Wow, law is a means of grace. You have the ability to keep it because you're indwelt with the spirit. However, you're gonna continue to screw up. However, you can hope that over a course of lifetime, the frequency in which you commit besetting sins will decrease. (laughs) What? You can, that's literally saying you can do it, but not really. Oh my goodness, I, I don't understand the thinking. Of, I'm telling you, when, when I listen to Christians talk, I'm sometimes just look at this like, do we hear ourselves? How utterly insane we sound? I don't know. I don't know. I'll have to stop right there. All right, because I know in some time zones, it's already after midnight and it's 11.05 p.m. Central Time here. I still want to do, I don't know. I'm going to, I really want to do an overnight program. I want to do like a marathon, like go from six o'clock at night to six o'clock in the morning. And just broadcast all night. And take little breaks. but I, Or maybe go from 6 in the morning to 6 in the morning. Do, I don't know. I don't know if I could ever pull that off. I always have these ideas. And then I would probably try it. And after a couple hours, like, this is garbage. i give up. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. We'll, we'll see. We, we, got, we have very little time left in 2022. I want to go out strong. I want to go out strong. I want to go out strong. And, uh, well, we need to stop reviewing stuff like this. No, no, this is actually important. In all seriousness, this is, this is horrible theology that we're hearing, but it is the theology of most of the evangelical world. And that's why we are doing a series on an understanding of law and gospel, because they are obliterating the distinction between, and they literally just turn the law into a means of grace. Absolutely shocking. Absolutely shocking. I don't even know. So what is the good news? What God has done for us perfectly in Christ Jesus, and we're saved by an imputed righteousness apart from works. Or is the good news, well, he did do that. However, the good news now is that you can keep the law. I literally want you to realize they said you can keep the law, and they've now turned around, that, and that was the bait. Hey, you can keep the law. And they just switched it and said, well, not really. You're going to continue to screw up. Well, if, I, if I'm screwing up at all, then I'm not keeping the law. The law demands perfection. And anyone should understand that. All right. You can email me, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. Everyone have a wonderful night. Thank you for listening. I'm going to just look really quick. I'm just curious what the numbers look like in a late night episode. Hang on. I'm going to look, look at it. Ah, okay. The numbers are okay for a late night episode. Not great. Not wonderful. Not horrible. They're okay, uh, but you know, you can't you can't chase the numbers. I I I, I still am going to go with the philosophy. I'm going to broadcast whenever I'm ready to broadcast, and that's what I'm going to do. So tomorrow morning, we'll be back live on the air for the Today's Focus podcast episode or s- series, and then we'll finish this review. We got to continue to work on our series on hindering the presence of God, which has been crazy. Uh, We have so many other things to work on. And as always, your emails, your thoughts, your comments, your questions, they always go to the top of the stack, and we always try to cover those things. So uh, please listen to the entire series on understanding law and gospel. Please, that's over 39 hours of teaching. Um, You can get it on the Church One app, Church O-N-E, Church O-N-E, search for Theology Central that turns it into the Theology Central app. Or if you're using Sermons 2.0, look for Theology Central, and then look for our series on understanding law and gospel. And you've got, well, now you've got, what, 41 hours plus of discussing a very important theological concept of the proper distinction between law and gospel. Uh, in, In the series, you'll see Law and Gospel PDF. That's the 25, I think 25 thesis on the proper distinction between law and gospel. And uh, you can read that and, well, just any any help on this. This is one of the most important series I've ever done because I believe the evangelical world is in a crisis right now. And that crisis is we've obliterated the proper distinction between law and gospel. And we've turning the gospel into basically the law. And we just heard the law in this episode that we're reviewing called A Means of Grace. That is utterly insane. All right. Thanks for listening. God bless.